Hello and welcome to this month's episode of the James Inc. Podcast. Today, our guest is Marcus Anderson, who is the clinic director and instructor for Northeastern State University's Speech-Language Pathology Program. Before his employment with the university, Marcus was a speech services supervisor with the Oklahoma State Department of Health and the Sooner Start Early Intervention Program for the state of Oklahoma. We talk about a lot of programs today that have acronyms, and so I want to define a couple of those for you before we begin. For one, FERPA, which is the main topic of today's conversation, is the Family Education Rights and Privacy Act. We also talk about IEPs, which are individualized education programs. We also talk about CAPTELSA and TELSA Educare. CAPTELSA is a program that helps young children and lower income families grow up and achieve economic success. And TELSA Educare is an organization that helps transform the lives of very young children and their families through high quality childhood education, enhancing parenting practices and strong partnerships with other organizations. Any other terms we mention, I believe Marcus defines. So I hope you enjoy our conversation. There's a lot to learn. And I hope you find it as useful as we did. Welcome to another episode of the James Inc. podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have Marcus Anderson on the podcast today. Marcus, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. And you, sir? I am doing well. Awesome. 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 Elisa, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Jesse. It's good to be back recording. Yes. Exciting. It's been a while. It's been a while. So, Marcus, I'm so glad to have you here today, and I'm really excited about our topic. I'm excited because so many of our parents and so many of our stakeholders don't understand what FERPA is. And it's really vital that we as parents and educators and community members understand the rights of the parents as they are with regard to FERPA. So, with my first question then becomes, just tell us what FERPA is. Okay, so FERPA is the Family Educational Rights and Privacy Act. Actually, it was enacted in 1974 for the primary purpose of, of protecting the privacy of student educational records. Uh, currently, it has been amended nine times, but there are primarily two purposes. One is to give parents and students control of their educational records and to secondly to prohibit educational institutions from disclosing personally identifying information in the education record without written consent. So a lot of have been brought into the educational arena as it re relates to records. And I, I think that as time has evolved, they had to amend it nine times because any type of action or law that's in place, of course, it's a fluid document in the sense that there's always going to be some exceptional issue to present. And in that, then, of course, those stakeholders or makers have to go back and look at how viable that issue is and is it going to impact the act that has been um, initiated. But it's definitely a tool for parents to have better control over who's accessing their child's records, as well as what's being disclosed in those records. So if I remember correctly, there are multiple sections of the FERPA documents. I know we talked briefly about, I believe you said there was a section B and a section C. 
to know for FERPA, there is just FERPA. And at when I reference Part B and Part C, that is related to IDEA. And so Part C is the birth to three, and then Part B is free on up as it relates to IDEA, which is the Individual Educational Act uh, designed for especially individuals with disabilities. Okay. So then I, as a parent, mm-hmm. and all parents just have fallen, have our rights explained under just FERPA in general. But if there's a child with a disability, then how is that different? Because in our current environment, I'm just really concerned about those kids who are on IEPs and how those things are going to be managed and worked through in this environment. And, and does FERPA, what does that stand for with regard to my child if he has uh, an IEP? So you're looking at, of course, FERPA is for any child. And so that is uh, whether a child is on an IEP or is not on an IEP, there still are those parental rights to know who has access to that child's records, the reason why they're accessing those records, and the school is held responsible, especially those that are receiving federal funding. And I want to highlight the fact that FERPA uh, has a large tie-in into federal funding. And so some of the private or parochial schools who don't receive those fundings are not responsible for adhering to FERPA. So unfortunately, a lot of laws that we do have has a a tie into funding. And so whenever there are some non-compliance, then that puts any educational institution at risk, whether it's just from your primary grade to your secondary and even at a college level. And so whenever there's a non-compliant issue presented, then that puts whatever entity at risk for losing their federal funding. And so funding plays a large part into it. In regards to purpose as it relates to IEP, IEPs, both of those, FERPA is like the whole conceptualization of those privacy uh, rules. And then underneath that, you have the Individuals with Disabilities Educational Act that extends things at greater detail as it relates to individuals who are in special education, which they have a different level of regulations that they must have to adhere to. So FERPA is like the major umbrella, and mm-hmm. then IDEA sort of falls under that scope with greater detail, and that's primarily based upon children with individuals with IEPs or who have disabilities. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. Okay. Can I ask a, a background question? Go ahead. I understand it was passed originally, I think you said FERPA was... FERPA, 1974. So... Did something happen in the early 70s that led to the creation of FERPA? And like, what has happened since then to have them add things to it or change as like technologies have changed? Yeah, to be quite candid with you, I'm not quite sure of what the evolutionary aspect of it as it relates to why it was written. I can assume 
that may be that there was some type of violation. And of course, typically that's what triggers any type of legislation is usually there's an event that happens that generates that, that uh, need or concern. A lot of times when there's educational changes or amendments in the acts, usually there's some type of exception that there may be something that during the original act they didn't consider. And so let's say that particular incident occurred. So for example, now, since we have so much of our educational records, pretty much being a part of the technology system, whereas we used to have hard copies of everything, and now you have to upload. Okay. So I'm sure that as those records became more transportable, so to speak, that I'm sure there had to have some tie-ins or some safeguards put in place to assure that those original rights have been protected. So when you talk about the educational record, what can I expect in my educational record? What should be there? What shouldn't be there? And what does the school have the right to disclose? Okay. So in most cases, you have what you call your identifying information, which is your child's name, address, parents, those types of things. So some of that information can be disclosed without approval if there is considered a school directory. However, you can request that your information be withheld out of that directory, but the educational, the law does not require that the school notify you because it's used for every child. Each year annually, every parent, whether and even every student at the higher education level, should there will be some announcement, this is the federal law, that FERPA should be introduced to the family. They don't have to do it on an individual basis, but they can say at the first day of school, Parents realize that FERPA is a system by which we adhere to, da-da-da-da-da-da. If you have any questions regarding your child's educational records, please access FERPA. We do have a copy of FERPA in our office. That's just an example. So they just need to have, it's somewhat like a, a disclaimer, and that's not the word that I really want to use just for lack of a better term, but it's like a universal statement for everyone to know that FERPA is an active piece of legislation that's a part of their education, their child educational experience. So at some level that is reflected uh, at all levels where there is, again, that funding associated with a particular institution. Now, as it relates, so you have your personal information and then you have your child's grades. And then you have any decisions that have been made as it relates to disciplinary actions that may have taken place, et cetera. Those are um, part of a child's educational record. And so when you're talking about educational records, primarily you're looking at grades and you're looking at behaviors. Let's say if a student had a behavior report that was written up, the school has to file that information somewhere and it becomes a part of your child's educational record. So I then have the right to 
one, see that information, and then can I dispute it if it's something that I don't want in the record? You can dispute it. Yes, you have the right to have full access to that record up until a child is 18 years old. And at that point in time, they become the owner of their record. And so you as the custodial parent or guardian would have to have their permission at the age of 18. So that's why in uh, college, you can't access your child's records without their permission. FERPA gives them that right after the age of 18. And so you do have the right to review your child's record. However, the school has the right also to dispute uh, those decisions. You can't use FERPA as a way to change grades. You can't use FERPA as a way to, I'm trying to think of the term like a espongement. I think that's the term that's used when <laughs> with a criminal record. So you, you can't, that privilege is not covered under FERPA. <laughs> However, you can request that there be corrections made. So let's say if you decide that you want to review your child's record and you see something in error, by law, you can request that be corrected. However, you have to give uh, the school system or the institution 45 days to reply with your request. And even though you make that request, that doesn't mean that the school will grant that request. With that being said, also, there is a process by which you can further dispute that through the Department of Education at a, a higher level. I think it's important, too, that you brought up the, the college student, because that also includes their financial records. Exactly. Exactly. And many parents don't realize when that child goes off to school, even though they are still very much in the support of a parent, that parent has to get permission from that child to access those records, which can often be a surprise and a shock. Mm -hmm. Without question, especially if you feel that you're the primary supporter of that child's education. Exactly, because I've written some pretty, pretty good checks to institutions and felt that it was my right. <laughs> To look at yes. every aspect of the record. That's something that parents need to know. But even more than that, it's interesting to me that a senior, an 18-year-old student in high school, still is the owner of that record. And many parents don't realize that. And I would be interested, and you may not know the answer to this, but I would be interested in knowing why as part of the law, they decided to make that at 18. So yeah. I to that fact in many <laughs> instances. So now you're also a speech pathologist. That's correct. Tell us about your experience as a speech pathologist and, and what that means. Because many times I have young parents and as we work with young parents who are anywhere from 13 to 24 years old. Mm -hmm. How do we help them to determine when a speech pathologist may be necessary? My background, of course, speech pathology, a lot of people really don't know 
you know, what that means. A lot of times when you talk about speech pathology, you're like, okay, so what is that? We associate pathology with some type of lab or <laughs> some type of clinical uh, experience. So the, the, I guess, more appropriate term for it versus speech language pathology would be communication science disorders, which is where we are trained to identify communication delays and disorders in young children as uh, early as the first few months of life. And then, of course, up into adulthood. We do have normative data that we utilize to determine how well even infants are doing as it relates to developmental milestones. Are they looking into their parents' face? Are they attending? Are they cooing? All those types of behaviors are indicative of brain functioning as well as how well kids are learning. So we, it goes beyond just talking and understanding it. We also look at the cognitive development of the ability to attend, the ability to imitate. All of those are critical developmental concerns that we look for in infants and up through children being toddlers and even up to preschool, et cetera. What what the federal government has brought about is what they call early intervention. And early intervention is a program in every state. Every state, it's federally mandated. Every state has what they call a birth to three uh, program. And it is free to all citizens of the United States of America. However, to qualify for those services, you have to have either two 25% delays or either one 50% delay. Or if you're looking at statistics, you have either uh, one, two minus 1.5 uh, discrepancies from the norm or one minus two from a discrepancy from the norm. And those are the qualifying uh, scores for early intervention. And what we're trying to do is all the research is showing that the first three years are the most critical years. And so what we're finding is that if we would do this upfront investment on facilitating learning, attachment, and getting children up to speed in all of the five areas of development, and when I mean the five areas of development, I'm looking at cognition, I'm looking at communication, I'm looking at fine motor, gross motor, and then social emotional. So those are the five areas by which we evaluate young children. And that's why the program is from birth to three. A lot of times we do know that there are some syndromes and conditions that put children at risk for significant developmental delays and who will more than likely have difficulties with their educational experience. And those are individuals with Down syndrome, Rich syndrome, individuals who are extremely premature, they're at greater risk for having significant delays. And so we have what we call a, an automatic qualifier. And so if you fall within those categories, then we're going to assume that your trajectory is going to be compromised. And so thus you automatically are eligible for those early intervention services. If you don't have a syndrome or condition, that will meet that automatic qualifier that you go through evaluation process by which we would determine whether your uh, delays are significant enough for the program. And at that point in time, 
then that's when uh, interventions are implemented. And if you don't qualify, then we're, we're required to provide some other supports. And so we encourage Mother's Day Out programs, being a part of your local library, connecting with your local child guidance department that does a lot of promotion, education, experiences, getting involved in other community services such as Educare, Head Start, those types of, and a lot of people don't understand that Head Start and Educare, they start infants in their program as, as early as six months of age. Yes, yes. Yeah, I think some people don't know that, but we call that, and CAP call it early head start. And, and, and of course, Educare is designed for that same purpose. That reminds me of two things. Um, first, we have talked previously, and you have said that going back to the whole federal dollars, mm-hmm. um, that zero to three. So if my child is identified as having a issue, for mm-hmm. lack of a better word. That's okay. And if it goes, if at three years old that issue is present, then if I remember correctly, then that becomes a part of that child's educational record. So yes. it ties back into FERPA. So then my question becomes, does that unduly prejudice the record for Black and brown children, how do we know that certain issue is relevant enough to go into the record? And who makes that decision? Of course, it's just a part of the law because now you have that record in state. Every child that's in the birth degree program at the age of three, there is, and this is a part of the law where their resource coordinator or their regional coordination group, which is, for example, we have the Tulsa County, we have Muskogee County. Mm-hmm. So those are regional sites. And so the regional sites by law have to notify what they call the LEA, which is your local education agency, and let them know. It's sort of actually it's a transition experience. And the goal is not to quote, mark the child or give the impression, but the whole intent of the spirit behind the early intervention unit contacting the local education agency is to promote a smooth transition. And so those children who do need those added educational supports will have them when they turn three. The law says that by the time a child is three, they have to have an IEP in place if they qualify. Mm. Now, this is another addition to that, is that those preschool services that are uh, recommended and that you are entitled to, they are all voluntary. Even birth to three, it's all voluntary. The hopes is that if we, based upon the research, that if we can get those early brain pathways established, those foundations created, that you would minimize the likelihood of a child needing special education. That's the whole spirit behind the whole uh, Early Intervention Act, is to minimize 
the likelihood of children needing special education. And so our goal is to get them up to the levels of their peers. And then once they've reached that level, then we the trajectory changes, of course, and then uh, the assumption is that success will happen because they've had those early experiences. Now, unfortunately, there's so much literature out there as it relates to the whole process of environment. You know, what genes you get, you can't do anything about it. However, you can change the environment. And so a lot of the early intervention strategies are empowering parents to create an environment that will foster the best development for a child to help them get to the, the level by which they should be. You also mentioned the recommendations of things like Mother's Day Out, Educare, mm-hmm. CAP, and all of those are fantastic recommendations. However, the population that we work with cannot afford Mother's Day Out. And even before the pandemic, mm-hmm. there was difficulty accessing the Educare and CAP systems, not because not because it's just because of the availability for space mm-hmm. just don't have enough of those programs and then there are also some policies within those programs that prevent young parents from accessing them for instance um if they don't report the father or file child support on the father during the there's a point system that is uh, a part of the assessment as to you're being accepted into one of those programs. So if you have not filed child support, in some cases, that means you don't get those points. And that puts you further down the line in terms of getting a spot into CAP. And now, even in this environment of the pandemic, I know that CAP is only doing virtual classes. Mm-hmm. And care is operating at approximately 40% so that they can ensure proper social distancing and all of those things. So we are really in a position where these our young kids now are not going to be able to access mm-hmm. the services that they need. How many, how many kids do you see within a year? that potentially could need these recommendations? As eligibility or non-eligible? As eligible. Okay, as eligible. I would say probably, probably because typically it's a referral. And so most of the times our referrals where you can do a self-referral from a parent. You don't have to go through a physician. And that's the unique thing about Sooner Start which is the part C, and then the school, which is the part B, is that you don't have those uh, points that you're referencing. They can call and you give them as much information as you'd like. So you don't, those heavy requirements aren't as uh, important as it is for some of the other, because this is state mandated. And so it should be open to any family. It's interesting because I had families in the program that were of lower socioeconomic status, and then I had those who were millionaires. Uh, And so it's just a state-mandated program. It's not based up on any type of socioeconomic standard. 
any perks or, or anything. It's just federally mandated. And so anyone can access the early intervention system in any state. Uh, and even if you don't, let's say, if they didn't qualify, once they turn three, you can take your child to your local school and say, hey, I'm concerned about my child talking. I'm concerned about my child's ability to eat. The school is responsible for even evaluating and screening your child at that time. So that's always a viable option. One of the, one of the things that, and, and I think I want to hone in on the fact is that it is so critical that parents understand that they can be that individual of change for their own child. And you just need the proper support. And that's the philosophy of the early intervention experience is that we work with the child within their natural environment. And we coach parents to do that, which I would do if I was their therapist. And so there's a transference of skills to the parent. Because when you look at it, let's say if I'm doing a session, I see a family once a, a week for an hour. Okay. Can you imagine the depravity of brain possibilities that would happen if we only work that one hour for the full week? So we want to constantly stimulate the learning and developing those brain uh, pathways in young children. So it's more feasible for me to take a set of skills and say, okay, these are things that we would do to help a child, for example, learn to eat. And I would coach the family on how to get this child to imitate, not only just imitate throwing a ball, but imitate while we're having our meal time. Let's imitate while it's bath time. Actually, let's imitate just going out to the mailbox. And because we know that our brains are constantly functioning with young children, their pathways, the brain plasticity is incredible. So it's able to change, it's able to adapt, it's able to reestablish new pathways and so it's like a it's you have to seize the moment and unfortunately for a lot of cultures i know primarily for us when i grew up kids were seen but not heard the research says now that kids need to be seen and heard and so if they don't have those experiences i don't know if you heard of the term the 30 million word uh difference where they look at Families who are more economically challenged, their kids are less likely to be read to. Their children are less likely to be played with. Their children are less likely uh, to have outdoor experiences. And of course, we know most of that is what environmental. And so what we do is we teach families that I know your neighborhood may not be the world's best, but let's take your child to the zoo. Take them to the park. Let's rise above that immediate environment and create an arena for your child to uh, reach their full potential. So I, I say that in saying that even though parents may not be able to access those, the power is theirs. And so putting themselves in a situation where they can go to a library, that's why we do a lot of uh, connections with the library. The library is an incredible place. One of the things that we have now in Tulsa 
is the new park. The uh, gathering place. Gathering place. Of activities that are going on for children to engage and to learn from each other. Kids learn from each other. Uh, so peer learning is critical. That's why Educare and CAP is, has been proven to assist so many children, especially children of color, is that they're out of their immediate environment and then they're thrust in an environment that's rich with language, rich with learning opportunities. And that's what we're trying to create. So whether it's at an individual level where you're seeing a therapist and they're working with a child or whether your child is in a school setting such as CAP or Educare, the whole thing, the bottom line is we need to stimulate learning and early brain development. And you can do that by reading, playing. Kids learn through play. And that's one of the critical, doing hide and seek or teaching object permanence. You can take a, an apple and put it on the napkin and you can ask the child, where's the apple? And so then if they don't, then you pull the napkin back a little bit and then just show a tiny piece of the apple. And then you say, where's the apple? And if they don't recognize it, then you point and you say, whoa, there's the apple. Teaching them object permanence that just because something is not present doesn't mean that it doesn't exist any longer. That's a cognitive piece. Those are the types of things that children need to be exposed to early on. Where do the greatest source of referrals come from? I find for us, Children First is a great resource, and it's the Visiting Nurses Program through right. through the Housing Authority. And so are the nurses then making those appointments or making referrals? Yeah, we do a lot of uh, C1 referrals because they are part of the health department. And so we've done a lot of collaborating with them. A lot of pediatricians are now aware of what early intervention is. And so we get a significant amount referrals from pediatricians are hospitals, especially those that have been hospitalized in NICU due to prematurity, feeding, etc. We get a lot of referrals. And believe it or not, we get a lot of self-referrals. People are around other kids and they're saying, Ooh, your child is a year and they're walking and my child is 18 months and they're not walking. Then they just whoop, red flags. And so they do a self-referral. Uh, a lot of times we get referrals from Educare and CAP, Some, a lot of daycare providers. It just depends upon the person's level of education and being able to identify uh, what those red flags are. Tons of referrals, especially now with the, the surge of individuals on the autism spectrum. Tons of referrals. So we're getting those early pediatricians are doing the uh, MCHAT, which is a screener that is being conducted in a lot of those settings that will let us know if a child is at risk for autism. And we get referrals from that uh, experience as well. So how does, what does this all look like for our babies that, ha that English is a second language for them? What does all of this look like for them? How do we connect them and make sure they're receiving the services that may or may not be needed. Again, with the Part B and Part C, by law, you have to provide those services in the child's primary language. And I know that we had several interpreters that we contracted with. We had several bilingual clinicians 
who were able to provide those services, and even those who were not what we would consider common languages, it was up to the agency to seek out those supports. And that's one thing that I applaud the uh, early intervention um, program, especially the Part C aspect of it, is that that was a top priority. And we knew that these first years, three years were critical. And so whenever we needed, we went out to access those interpreters and so they could help with that process. As James is an agency that focuses on the personal and professional development of young families. That's the mm-hmm. mother and the fathers. And so our focus is not necessarily on the children, but we want to make sure that we are making referrals that are going to be beneficial to the development of both the parent and the child. How do we as an agency, what should be our first referral or course of action in getting a family connected for services and also helping them understand their parental rights as they relate to the educational records of their children? How do we foster that development of of information? If it's, I guess, if it's related primarily to FERPA, FERPA really, of course, you can access the law on the educational, the federal educational website. In most school systems, you can access FERPA uh, documents on on their sites. If they're a part of the Sooner Start or Early Intervention programs, any state, then they will automatically get a booklet on their rights. They call them safeguards and procedural rights. And so that's a document. And read it. (laughs) That's the critical thing. I think people are dismissive when it comes to those documents, but you need to know what your rights are. And so if that's the case, and then with that referral, when someone makes a referral, when you um, contact them, if you choose that you want to avail yourself of those services, ask those questions. So do you guys have uh, procedural rights or what? And there's a hidden jewel that I don't think a lot of people know about is there's a uh, a program that's in the health departments that's called Guidance. And Guidance is a child guidance is a program designed to support parents. It gives them the tools for parenting. Also, if there are some concerns that may be addressed as it relates to the parents, then they can also make some referrals to some of the family and children's services and some of those other uh, supports that are out there um, for families. So that's what I would suggest is that you be your own self-advocate and you begin to ask questions. You, it, there's an old saying that a closed mouth doesn't get fed. Well, <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I agree with that. You're your best advocate for not only yourself, but for your child. And so you have to ask those questions. I think you hit the nail on the head. So many of our young people don't read. And I I grew up reading my entire life. So I don't always fully understand that. And a big part of what we do is just getting the parents to read Mm -hmm. for themselves. And, And then just explaining how important the reading is from the standpoint reading to the child is from the standpoint of those third grade reading scores are what's used to 
determine the number of prisons that are going to be built in the future. So we talk about reading from that perspective. And now we'll also include the reading from the perspective of just the cognitive development of the child as well. Just getting, I'm amazed at the young people that say they don't read. And even if it's a magazine, (laughs) don't read at all. And unfortunately, I think, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I think unfortunately is those early brain experience didn't occur. No one read to them and Mm -hmm. literacy wasn't a part of their environment. And thus their brain just didn't get those early experiences. And so that's why we're saying the first three years is the foundational years. And it's we call it brain architecture. That if you can get that foundation, then the house is ready to be built. But if that brain architecture doesn't take place in those first three years, then the house is definitely at risk for not uh, being solid and, and being a, a safe place. I'm going to have to steal that from you. <laughs> Jesse, I know you had a question for Marcus, so I want to jump in and ask your questions. We moved past my my question a while ago, which was just like, I'm involved in a lot of nonprofits that volunteer in schools, and I'm currently helping a project to get internet access into, into people's homes for the fact that we are all having to learn from home now. And FERP has been coming up a lot in conversations I didn't think they'd be coming up in, only in the fact that it didn't occur to me that trying to do something helpful for families will occasionally run into the fact that we can't get the information from them necessarily. Mm-hmm. They've already agreed to give it to somebody else. So students who are on free and reduced lunch program, that information is not easily accessible exactly. to organization unless they already have some sort of data sharing agreement with the schools. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, so what I'm being told is unless I'm working with an organization that already has these agreements with families, we can't necessarily get the information we need to help them due to privacy protections. And I was just, I've been thinking about that a lot. I understand why these things are mm-hmm. here, but when we're trying to do something helpful and say a worldwide emergency, like there's no avenue or aspect of the law that allows for things to shift when necessary. And it's just both frustrating mm-hmm. and understandable at the same time. Yeah, I just think that is so critical. And again, as I referenced earlier, it was designed to give parents control. And I can appreciate that. I have a child who had some who's developmentally delayed as an adult, and I knew my rights. And thus, he had a different trajectory in comparison to other kids. I think his level of potential reached further simply because I was informed. And I think that is uh, necessary. Now, back into your um, referencing about FERPA as it relates to getting some of those supports in place. And this is just my own personal um, thought is that if that is necessary, then to me, that is a perfect opportunity to develop partnership with the family. There is a principle that I learned about. Dr. Julian Woods out of Florida State University coined the phrase WIFM. And WIFM is W-I-I-F-M, which says, what is in it for me? And so when you can market things and people can actually see its benefit, then they're willing to consent. They're willing to open themselves up 
for whatever experience uh, you're wanting to try to market, whether it's access to internet, etc. It has to become an internal drive of theirs. There are a lot of things that I think people need to do and that they should know. But just because I believe that doesn't mean that they believe that. And so part of my responsibility in marketing what I'm thinking is in best in the best interest of others is that I need to tap into their wisdom. I like that. Jesse, as you said that, I've been concerned about how our parents were going to get access to those services that they need with regard to technology. And our challenge has been, if I have an 18-year-old who is in the home with a parent that has a previous account with Cox Cable or someone like that, and they have a, a balance due, that my student then does is no longer eligible for uh, reduced services, Cox Cable services or Wi-Fi services. But now that we've had this discussion, for us, a positive is that most of our our clients are over the age of 18. So gathering that information for from them it would be much easier for us as an organization than it is to find and chase down a parent in the home, in the regular school setting. It's unfortunate, and this is my perspective, but there are so many parents that aren't in the home or kids that are being parented by someone other than their mothers. And we have to be, we're going to run into situations where that parent may not be the legal custodian. It, it, it's just a huge, COVID has opened up a myriad of opportunities, but it also has all of the challenges. And we may need to amend, have a 10th amendment to FERPA because of COVID. <laughs> That's one of the things, like, for example, when the when we closed down here, even though I had consent for services for my family, because we were changing the platform from in-person to um, telepractice, I had to get an additional consent. Those are the details that are out there. Parents' rights are, are very critical in driving services, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those, those rights are, they're there and we just have to learn to, and again, release some of that. And, and to me, those are opportunities when you can really empower families and parents and know we have your best interest at heart. We want you and your child to have the best experience, but we need to have your full cooperation. And that is through your consent. Uh, and but I think that again, my experiences, whether you know it's at the collegiate level or just as an adult to adult, is that you have to people have to have a buy-in themselves, and you could want it, but if you don't tap into their wisdom, the <laughs> likelihood <laughs> the likelihood of there being any follow-through or commitment is. <laughs> It's <laughs> well, well, I think that's a good place to wrap it up, Jesse. <laughs> Any last words? No, just COVID, man. <laughs> Making things complicated. Marcus Anderson, we really appreciate you giving us this hour of your time today. 
You just have a wealth of knowledge that we need to make sure that the community hears and knows and understands. And I thank you for your openness and your willingness to share because we need information right now and we need the correct information so that we can make the best decisions for our families and for our community. So again, thank you. Thank well, you. Thank you for thank the opportunity. Thank you all for listening to this month's episode of the James Inc. Podcast. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Marcus as much as Elisa and I did. Please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. And please follow James Inc. on Facebook. And if you have the means, please donate to help James Inc. do their work on their website, jamesinc.org. Thank you all and see you all next month.